Hi, good morning, church. Can hear me, right? I, I wonder if you remember, previously um, I had this uh, No Easy Answer sermon series on suffering. And I touched on Hebrews chapter 5, verses 8 to 9. So catching on to this phrase, and being made perfect, I pointed out that Jesus wasn't perfect before, but he became perfect after suffering. After service that day, someone asked, how can Jesus not be perfect you know, I take your questions and feedback seriously, which is why I'm preaching on Hebrews uh, today to address that question. Of course, this sermon is not just a response to that question. There is also a message for us here today, and the message is this. Draw near to Jesus, for he has overcome sin. I will tell you why we must draw near, how we can have the courage to draw near, and talk about Jesus' perfected humanity. The three verses in chapter 4 of our passage are an introduction to the rest of uh, chapter 5. There are two commandments here. Let us hold fast our confession and let us draw near to the throne of grace. To hold fast our confession means to believe in Jesus Christ. We express this belief by confessing his name, by obeying God's word and doing good works. To draw near to the throne of grace means to come before God to seek his forgiveness and depend on him for help. We obey this command when we gather for worship services and whenever we pray. We are commanded and indeed we must draw near to God in Jesus Christ because we are all in desperate need of saving. We see from this introduction that human beings have weaknesses. For example, we have limited time, energy, and resources. Because of our human weaknesses, we are susceptible to temptations, and when we are tempted, we sin. The truth is, fallen humankind is unable to avoid sinning against God. No matter how many times we swear or make promises, no matter how shameful or regretful we feel, we simply cannot choose not to sin. John Calvin says, when a sinful human being appears not to sin, it is not because he is able to resist evil. Rather, it is because God has restrained us with a sense of shame or a fear of the law. Or sometimes it is simply not in our best interest to sin. Nevertheless, our sinful nature remains active in us. Since today is Mother's Day, let's talk about the fifth commandment. Honour your father and your mother. My mother taught me and my sisters how to ride the bicycle. All three of us acquired the skill, but I was the only one who fell in love with cycling. I was the one who hassled my mother to get us a bicycle in the first place. It was a tiny red one with training wheels. When we outgrew that bicycle, I persuaded my mother to get us a larger one. I was thinking, you know, of a road bike with drop handlebars, black colour, or at least mountain bike eh, with gears. But when we got to the bike shop, my mother chose something like this. <laughs> a red step-through fixie complete with front basket. Nowhere near what I wanted. I think it's what she wanted. 
My mother said she wasn't going to buy me a road bike because she didn't want me riding on the roads. She instructed me to stay on the residential pathways that time still don't have park connector. Otherwise, she will throw the bicycle away. <sighs> Naturally, I was very disappointed. But since this was better than not getting a bicycle at all, I said, okay. But I consoled myself saying, I will ride on the roads when my mother is dead. Did you hear what I just said? On the surface, I appeared to be honouring my mother and submitting to her instructions. However, I was only remaining obedient so that I can get a bicycle. Furthermore, I was already secretly plotting to disobey her. The moment she's gone, I will rebel against her. One can even say that I wish my mother was dead. This is sin. I'm not ashamed to confess my sinful thoughts because I know I'm not the only one who has ever secretly wished, whether we mean it or not, that our parents or grandparents are dead. We wish they would die sooner so that we don't have to spend our limited time visiting them, so that we don't have to use our limited energy taking care of them, so that we can spend our money elsewhere, so that we can be free. When we are young, we sin against our parents in this way. In our old age, these same sinful thoughts will turn against us, in our frailty, dependence and illness, we find ourselves a burden to our own children. My grandmother, in her final days, refused to eat because she wanted to die. There are people who took their lives because they didn't want their family to suffer with them. You know, Perhaps not allowing our children to take care of us should be considered a transgression against the fifth commandment. But as it is, it is an evil temptation driving some to commit suicide. Lord, lead us not into this temptation. Look how talking about one of the Ten Commandments has already exposed the imperfections and darkness of our fallen humanity. We are incapable of doing what is loving to those we profess to love. We are incapable of doing what is ultimately right for ourselves. Our selfish desires make us unhappy and other people miserable. Therefore, we must draw near to God. Only God's mercy can pardon us for the evil thoughts we often have against our parents and other people. Only God's grace can help us resist the temptations to, write, to raise our voices at our parents, to neglect caring for them, or worse, even abuse them. Before Christ, these needs for divine grace and mercy were ministered to by the Levitical high priest. Chapter 5, verse 1 says, The priest offers gifts as well as sacrifices for sins. Now, gifts refer to the peace and grain offerings, which are demonstrations of gratitude and dependence on God, while sacrifices for sins refer to the burnt sin and guilt offerings, where the animals die in place of sinners. 
Through sacrifices, the high priest prays for God to forgive the sinners. And through gifts, the priest asks for God's grace to help people obey God and prosper. Now, after Christ, there is no longer a need for a Levitical great high priest because Jesus is the high priest for Christians. Jesus has secured for us forgiveness and reconciliation with God through the sacrifice of his own life. And through the gift of his spirit, Jesus empowers us to live according to God's commandments. If you want to become more loving people, even perfect human beings, we must draw near to him. When the Hebrews hear, let us draw near, an image of going to the temple would have come to their minds because this language is associated with the temple. Leviticus 9.7 says, Then Moses said to Aaron, Draw near to the altar and offer your sin offering and your burnt offering and make atonement for yourself and for the people and bring the offering of the people and make atonement for them as the Lord has commanded. So to the Hebrews, draw near is a call to come forward in confession, to make offerings and to be assured of salvation. Now imagine you're a Jew living in the days of the temple. To draw near involves bringing, let's say, a goat to the temple. And when you arrive, you pull the goat up to the altar, come your turn, and confess your sins before the priest and everyone else present. How humbling it was to be seen in the streets with an animal in hand. Because everybody knows you're going to confess your sins. How embarrassing it must be to stand in line before the altar waiting for your turn to draw near. How shameful it must have been to make open and public confession. Since not many of us today, uh, anyone wants to come up and share your sins from the past week? As you can imagine, drawing near requires a lot of courage and humility. But what gave the Jews the confidence, the courage, the fearlessness to draw near to God in such public manner? Perhaps it's safety in numbers. I mean, they probably don't feel as condemned because everybody else are also sinners. Right? Even the priest has to make offerings. Like us today, everyone, including the pastors, have to kneel and confess during the general confession. We're all the same. That may be true, but the author of Hebrews provides his reasons in the very beginning. He says in verse 16, Let us draw near that we may receive mercy and find grace. The original Greek grammar for this verse reveals that God gave the command for us to come to him because he already intends to show mercy and grace. Before we even draw near, he has already given us mercy and grace. He wants us to draw near and claim this free gift of forgiveness. He wants us to come and take the help that he is freely giving. And since what Almighty God wants to do, he accomplishes, the result is already certain. That is to say, when God says he intends to show mercy and grace, this is a promise which cannot be broken. 
Because of these two things, God's command and God's promise for us, we may take courage and draw near. And as if the divine command and promise are not enough to persuade us, these things are guaranteed by the character of Jesus Christ. Earlier in Hebrews 2.17, it is written, Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. In other words, we can trust in Jesus because he is faithful to God and merciful to humankind. He will deal gently with us, fulfilling God's promises to us because he is human just like us. Oftentimes, we use what we have in common with each other to oppress one another. When someone says they cannot join us in our activities because they are busy studying, we turn around and say, I also have homework work. Or when another tells us that they cannot commit to certain duties or work expectations because they need to take care of their children, we say to them, I have kids too. Yet, when we tell Jesus that we are unable to avoid sin. Jesus doesn't say, I have resisted every temptation. What's so difficult? Instead, being merciful, he says, I know how hard life is. Come, let me help you. Tell me what you're struggling with, and I will give you the help you need to overcome. You know, if more Christians are like Jesus, more compassionate than oppressive, then those who feel ashamed will not hide from the church, but draw near together with us. How do we become more compassionate? We become by sharing our weaknesses, by talking about the temptations we faced, and by confessing our sins to God and to one another. For until we enter in our, into our own weaknesses and suffering, like how Jesus entered into ours, we will not be able to sympathize with other people, and neither will people believe that we are able to sympathize with them. We dare to draw near to God and make public confession because His command his promise, and because Christ learned to be merciful as a human being. The rest of our passage proves how Jesus is human, just like us, by comparing Jesus with the Levitical high priest. And there are two points of argument here. One, Jesus is truly human because he became priest by divine appointment. Now, in chapter 5, verses 1 and 4, we are reminded that God chose Aaron from among men to be the high priest, and no one can take this honor unless he is called by God. Now, compare this to Jesus. Verses 5 and 10 says that Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him, and that he was designated by God a high priest. What this tells us is, that if Jesus were only divine, he would declare himself high priest himself. 
Yeah? He would not need any introductions. However, the fact that he was divinely appointed like every other human priest underscores the fact that he is also human. The second point of comparison, Jesus is truly human because he shares in our human weaknesses. Verse 2 says that the Levitical high priest is himself beset with weakness. This means that he is weak in various ways human beings are weak and equally vulnerable to sin. Therefore, he needs to offer sacrifices for his own sins. Now, compare this to Jesus. Verses 7 and 8 tells us how Jesus was also weak in his humanity. In the days of his flesh, affirms that Jesus took the form of a human and in his lifetime experienced human weaknesses. Just think, God in his omniscience, omnipotence and omnipresence confined to the limited intelligence, body and strength of a human being bound in time. The one who spoke and there was light had to spend nine months in the darkness of a mother's womb. The one who parted the heavens from the earth and seas had to learn how to sit up straight, crawl, then walk. The one who has infinite wisdom to create vegetation and living creatures of every kind had to go to school to pray at his local synagogue before he can comprehend and articulate his identity as the saviour of the world. Jesus became man. And in his lifetime, he suffered just as humans suffer. The depths of his suffering are captured for us in this moving statement. It wasn't moving. Okay, this is a moving statement. Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. Who was praying? Jesus. Who was crying his heart out? Jesus. Who was Jesus praying and crying for? Himself. We're reminded of his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. From me. Jesus prayed for himself. Jesus asked his Father for help to avoid Calvary. Why? Because he is afraid of death and suffering. Fear is a human emotion. Being afraid to die is not a sin. It is being human. But ultimately, Jesus prays, yet not what I want, but what you want. He was afraid to die, but he goes to the cross. From his fear, we know he is truly human. In his obedience, he became the perfect human being. Now is the time to tackle the statement that led to this sermon. I said, Jesus wasn't perfect before, but he became perfect after suffering. What I should have said is, Jesus wasn't the perfect human being before, but he became the perfect human being after suffering. Now even so, the question remains, how can Jesus not be a perfect human being from the beginning? 
To answer this, we will have to look into the meaning of the Greek word for perfect. I'm sorry, guys, but this is going to get a bit technical, uh, but it will clarify things for us. If you have any questions, you can ask me again after the service. So in the Bible, the Greek word for perfect, teleos, usually refers to the perfection of God. God is perfect because he is completely free from sin. Completely free from sin. And the expression, having been made perfect, is translated from the Greek verb teleothes, which means to have overcome or supplant an imperfect state of things. Taken together, we understand Jesus having made perfect to mean that God helped Jesus overcome human weaknesses and resist temptations such that he is completely free from sin. Since Jesus is God and God is perfect, when we say Jesus was made perfect, what we really mean is he is perfected in his humanity. Now, Jesus only attained perfection in his humanity after death. This is because before his death, it was still possible for him to sin. It is only after his death that he is free from sin. He is free from sin not because he ceased to be human after his resurrection, but because he has overcome sin. The author of Hebrews tells us the good news in this way. He has appeared once for all at the end of the age to remove sin by the sacrifice of himself. He has removed sin. That is to say, he has disarmed, he has neutralized the power that sin has over humankind. While the blood of animal sacrifices purifies our flesh from sins, the blood of Jesus purifies our sinful nature. Whereas in our fallen state, we cannot avoid sin because of our sinful nature, in Christ, we are set free from our bondage to sin. Christians are able to choose not to sin, but to do what is loving and right. You are able to choose not to sin because of Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is written in verse 9, not only was Jesus made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation, saving and perfecting all who confess and obey him. At this point, we may face another objection. If Jesus was not perfect before his death, how is his sacrifice sufficient to redeem us? Somehow we have this idea that Jesus is the one perfect sacrifice. I keep thinking there's a song that says he's the perfect sacrifice. Not sure, you know, maybe the worship team can tell me later. But then, anyway, if we search the New Testament, we will find that Jesus has never been described as the perfect sacrifice or a sacrifice which is perfect using the Greek word earlier, theleos. Particularly, in our letter to the Hebrews, the author wrote that Jesus had to offer for all time a single sacrifice for sins. And by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. He never wrote that Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. 
Now, I did find that the Message Bible translated verse 14 as, it was a perfect sacrifice by a perfect person to perfect some very imperfect people. This, of course, is a dynamic translation which has perhaps taken too much liberty and tried too hard to rhyme. Yeah. Uh, nevertheless, those of you who read your Bibles uh, will be um, dying to tell me, it's in the Old Testament, correct or not? Well, yes and no. Leviticus 22.21 says, And when anyone offers a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord to fulfill a vow or as a free will offering from the herd or from the flock, to be accepted, it must be perfect. There shall be no blemish in it. Ah, so, no wonder we think that he is the perfect sacrifice. But the Hebrew word that is translated here as perfect means that the animal is complete. The verse confirms that the sacrifice is perfect in the sense that it is not physically defective. It means unblemished. It is important to note that when the Hebrew Old Testament trans translated into Greek, that is the Greek Septuagint, the Greek word used for perfect is not the adjective tele teleoi, but the adjective amomos, which sounds like Hokkien amomo, but actually it means being without defect or blemish. <laughs> Greek not so difficult, sounds like Hokkien. Anyway. What this means is, if we have to say that Jesus is the perfect sacrifice, what we mean is that he is an unblemished human being. He is fully and completely human, lacking nothing physically, psychologically, or spiritually. Most importantly, he is not corrupted by sin. His human nature is wholly intact and good, just like Adam and Eve before the fall. So some of you, if you're fast enough, will be already asking, how can Jesus still not be the perfect human being if he is already completely human and without a sinful nature? What other perfection remains to be achieved? Again, we must return to the Greek definition. Perfection refers to freedom from sin. Remember that Adam and Eve can and they did obey, disobey God even though they were complete human beings without a sinful nature. Remember that? This means that Jesus has the same potential to fall to temptation and sin just as they did. As long as he is alive, Jesus could choose to sin, he could choose not to sin. It is clear then that being unblemished and perfect in the Hebrew sense doesn't mean that he is not able to sin. Although Jesus is an unblemished human being, he was not perfect until he had lived and died in full obedience to God the Father. The final question, and perhaps the most important one we must ask is, Jesus was free to sin, yet he was free from sin. How did he turn out so differently from Adam and Eve? Jesus was able to emerge without sin because he feared God. Knowing that God has the power to destroy both soul and body in hell, Jesus drew near to God, offering up prayers and supplications for himself with loud cries and tears. 
And because of his fear of God and absolute dependence on him, God helped Jesus overcome sin and death. As it is written in chapter 5, verse 7, he was heard because of his reverence. Allow me to conclude by spelling out what all this knowledge means for us. My friends, Jesus has overcome sin, which plagues each and every one of us. When we draw near to him in faith, our hearts are sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We are free not to sin. Furthermore, he has shown us by his example that we may lead righteous lives, free from sin, if we rely on God. He knows our weaknesses and he desires to give his power to fight it. Now, some of us may feel that we are still the same even though we have been Christians for donkey years or even all our life. We're still so short-tempered, so unfaithful, so unkind, so selfish. But that's because we're not perfect yet. It's not what we do, but what Christ does to us. Therefore, don't be so hard on yourself. When Christ returns, we shall all be made perfect, confirmed and guaranteed. And what a glorious day that would be. Since then, we have this great high priest, Jesus Christ, who has accomplished all these things for us. Let us draw near to him. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, you are our great high priest. We thank you for taking on the flesh with mercy and suffering and eventually being victorious over sin. Thank you for sharing your eternal victory with us, saving and perfecting us just as you are perfect. We seek your divine mercy for the times when we think that we will be rejected by you because of our sinfulness, or when we believe that you are unable to help us. Forgive us, O Lord, for our unbelief, and give us grace to come out of hiding, to face you without fear, and draw ever closer to you. Hear us, we pray, for you are our merciful and faithful great high priest, who is alive and reigns with the Father in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.